It's the history of football we knows about And we want to expand what we know We'll become such intelligent gentry With every kick-to-kick show Beginning in the time 1870s Right through to the modern day Tune in for Timmy Coops and the Kazmaz To hear what they all have to say Well, Adam, well, thank, mate, th- yeah, thank you for coming on. We've we've actually been using your Demon Wiki blog for as long as this show's been going. So, before anything, thank you because it's a, an amazing resource <laughs> that we love. I use all the time. Yeah, yeah no, thank you. I appreciate that. Probably number two yeah. are NFL tables. Yeah, well, that's we all uh, we all acknowledge them as the all time legends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, I'm the I'm the solitary Essendon supporter in our team as well, Charlie. Yep. Everyone else who's not here, they're all demons, so they're all very sympathetic to you. Absolutely, <laughs> gonna, yeah, it's been a it's nice it's nice reliving the past at the moment. I tell you, I can understand you're why, trouble, why you're in trouble after this episode. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Love it. It's the yeah. best. So we we've already recorded 1964, which means we can like we we kind of know. Like we've read your book and and we've we yeah. spoken about the whole season from other teams' point of view, so we're we're right there, ready to go. Yeah. So this is purely Melbourne centric. That's all anyone cares about, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> so we can just get get stuck in. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's kick off then. Um, why did, when when I was talking to Charlie about it first, I said, "Oh, here's this new book. It's called The Last Hurrah." And Charlie's reaction was, "Oh." Why is it called the last hurrah? We're going to have more finals. We're going to have more success <laughs> eventually. Why did you choose that as the title? Well, I think to to go for that point, you need to remember the kid at the end of the book whose dad dragged him out of the MCG in the <laughs> last minute of the game. And when the kid protested, the dad said words to the effect of, don't worry, there'll be plenty more of these in your future. Uh, and obviously that kid was a middle-aged man at least by the time Melbourne made a next finals. Yeah. Uh, and we hope, we hope he's still around uh, to see the next premiership. So, unfortunately, at the moment, that is the, the reality of it. It is the last hurrah. Uh, yeah. We hope very much that it will not be the last hurrah yeah. of all time. But nothing is guaranteed. Unfortunately, now you've got an extra six teams you have to beat beyond what was in the league in 1964. So, every time new teams come in, obviously, the equation on how many teams you've got to beat goes up yeah. uh, and we might have missed a few opportunities by the time the league expanded to 18 teams. Yeah, was there any absolutely. alternative titles you were looking at? Yeah, one. the only other one I was really looking at was called End of Empire, yeah. uh, which is actually based on a, a really good documentary series that is about the fall of the British Empire and each episode oh. with a, a different, different uh, colony that they, they pulled out of over the years. And it's something that's on YouTube, and I've watched it heaps of times, and I, I really love that name, End of Empire, but but it just lost out in the uh, it lost out in the battle at the well, end. Uh, yeah, they both they both fit pretty perfectly, don't they? Because it really was the end of such a, such a long period of sustained success. Like, yeah, um, yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, so, well, I, I guess that goes in more into the last hurrah, probably from I can see from the publisher's perspective is more like selling it to that season. Whereas yes. my the end of Empire was more just that that bit that comes after the season where things go south at a, a fairly rapid rate. Yeah. Uh, by the end of the sixties, Melbourne was pretty much back to where they were early in the fifties, which was down at the bottom of the ladder. Yeah. Yeah, and like well, that leads kind of on to what we we're talking about is this sixty four. At the time, we didn't really realize, but it was such a pivotal year in, in the history of our, if the club. So excluding the fact that we managed to pinch the premiership, what do you think was the biggest thing that emerged in 64? Yeah, I think the end of the year when Barassi left, that's, that's yeah. an enormous factor uh, in, the, in the future of the club. Um, the, the incident in the middle of the season where Norm Smith made his comments about umpire Don Blue uh, yeah. said that he was subconsciously biased against Melbourne, which is just a classic thing to say. <laughs> it's the kind of thing people would say on forums these days not and he was very upset about that because the secretary Jim Cardwell actually heard that interview and allowed it to go to air and so when the umpire came back and went to sue Norm Smith he went to the committee and said well you approved it so you're on the defense fund and they said you're kidding 
Mm. And that was one of the many sources of friction. So no one knew at the time, uh, but that was one of the things, one of the many things that factored into Norm Smith's eventual dismissal, uh, short-lived, but long, yeah. long-lasting uh, impact. So they're probably the main two things, but also one of the really underrated things is Richmond's uh, move into the MCG. So they moved into the MCG in 1965. Yeah, uh, largely, and what I discovered in the research for the book was because Punt Road was being widened, which is why you look at Punt Road Oval now and there's no stand down one side of the ground. <laughs> yeah. Which, as a kid, you look at that and you go, how did they used to play footy here? There's no stand down one side of the ground. Well, there was, but then Punt oh. Road, to, to the joy of motorists everywhere, was widened. <laughs> Uh, and the Tigers were very keen to move into the MCG to the point where they actually had a crack at Ron Barassi before Carlton did. Yeah. Uh, but they, they, they chickened out is probably the only way you can say it. They chickened out because they were worried that Melbourne and the MCC would block them from moving into the MCG. If they stepped uh, on the toes before the deal was done. Yeah, yeah okay. and they would have likely ended up at the Junction Oval replacing St Kilda who were going to Moorabbin. So they pulled out to make sure they went to the MCG. And what that did was that put a home game for somebody at the MCG every week. So you had the MCC members then probably started a little bit of a drift of loyalty, some of them, to being able to watch, to just stay at that ground every week (laughs) and watch, stay in their seat every week and watch a game. And it also coincided a few years later with Richmond, obviously finding a lot of success and Melbourne really dropping off. So Arguably, that's that's where some of the, the drift in support probably started. And probably the other thing is the country recruiting changes that yeah. were really yeah. in the mix at the time. They didn't come in until 1968, but it was being discussed a lot at the time and, and went to a vote, I think, in 1965 and got the country leagues actually voted it down because they wanted more money for for their players being taken. So it didn't come yeah. in until 1968, but it was starting to brew at that point where you were going to lose the advantage of having a Jim Cardwell type figure who could basically talk anyone into anything and, and would be happy, him and Ken Carlin would be happy to go around the state and just rack up signatures and talk people into signing for Melbourne, give them extra jobs, give them a job as the groundskeeper at the Albert Ground or <laughs> running the board at the MCG. Uh, once they lost that opportunity and were tied into uh, the particular area that they eventually got via a completely random draw, all the 12 teams just picked a picked a recruiting zone at random. Um, that, that obviously kept teams really into to where they were able to the recruit their players from. So eventually, for four or five years down the track, that, that um, change that was brewing in 1964 eventually really hurt Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and like that, that momentum of um, having that extra thing to be able to recruit with saying, you know, come to the team that's, you know, coached by Norm Smith and is the best team in the league is an yep. extra thing that they weren't then able to do as well. So, yeah, that's that's really interesting. The Richmond thing I hadn't really thought too much about and and the thing that I, I really loved in reading the book was um I knew, knew about, you know, the beginning of the stoush to do with the fight with the umpire, but I didn't realise until reading the book that um, the, board, the board had given the okay for the interview to be released. So that adds that extra level of you know, friction between the two. So that was really interesting hearing that extra detail because it sort of adds a little bit more to that story, a little bit more, yeah. And then another level where Norm Smith engaged the president of Richmond as his lawyer. Yeah. Yes. And, of course, his brother, his brother was coaching Richmond and, and you know, had come back from a heart attack, so it was clear that he wasn't going to be at Richmond for long. So that also made a lot of people think, hold on, what's going on here? He might yeah. be off to Richmond very soon as well, so... Um, Richmond is is without really doing anything, they're quite pivotal in the Melbourne story at this time of the at this time of the year. And almost like a shift in power as well, because Richmond's next twenty years from this point are pretty successful. Yep, yep, absolutely. And that's the thing. Where whereas you could have said for six, seventy years, uh, come and play for Melbourne, you get to play on the MCG every week, and mm. supporters who didn't. Put, potentially have another reason to go for another team might say I'll go for Melbourne because I can watch the MCG every week Uh, that was gone as of 1965 you had supporters could go and watch Richmond every second week at the MCG and they could also players could be signed by Richmond to say hey look you can come play at the MCG every second week so yeah good point the the factor but it was a contributing factor in that drift away from uh, Melbourne being the the biggest club in the land yeah 
So Melbourne seemed to have a pretty stock standard season in 64. It's stock standard in terms of what they'd done for the last 11 years. Um, but it all came like the pivotal game was that round 17 match against Hawthorne, um, which you mentioned in the book. And luckily there's a bit of footage of that as well. And you get to see the, the winning goal kicks. Um, why was that such a pivotal game? What, what was the... Yeah, well, well, Melbourne had been fighting with Geelong for top spot for most of the season, uh, but it was a very tight top five in a, in a season where the, the top four was still only going through to the finals. Someone was going to miss out. Uh, it's almost like this season where the top five is going to finish a mile in front of yeah. six, seven, eight. But the difference here is that six, seven, eight still get a chance, whereas five, I think Essendon won 13 games in one yeah. of the previous couple of seasons and missed the finals. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and so Melbourne was still a very live chance of missing the top four going into the last couple of weeks of the season. Uh, and had they lost to Hawthorne on a muddy, horrible Glenferry Oval, they still would have had the opportunity to win the next week and qualify for the finals. But that would have required them to beat the Footscray at the Western Oval, which is almost the next worst yeah. uh, game, a venue that you could have to play at in the, in the league. Um, obviously, yeah. Moran- was a, still a year away. So that was that became a very tricky venue to play at. And so losing that game would have really left them on the verge of potentially missing the four entirely. Uh, and Hassan kicked an absolute corker of a goal from the pocket right at the end to win that game. Uh, and Melbourne lost the next week to Footscray. Now, they didn't rest anyone. They didn't take it easy. But they did come out of that Hawthorne game with a few injuries. So mm. it's, it's not to say they would necessarily have lost the next week had it all been on the line. Yeah. Uh, but it would have been a very risky proposition to have to win at the Western Oval. And what happened instead was uh, St Kilda pulled off the big upset in their last game at the Junction Oval and beat Geelong, which then helped Melbourne to jump to the top of the ladder. So th- that compact five five goes into four uh, ended up being such different permutations here, there and everywhere that from potentially finishing fifth and missing the finals, Melbourne ended up winning the minor premiership. Yeah, which I love that. Inter- first or second didn't really matter, but the moral, the the uh, the psychological blow of finishing yeah. top, is probably more important to someone like Norm Smith than just finishing second and playing the same team anyway. And being able to interchange Hawthorne and Melbourne seasons like that, I like that you can look back and, and do that quite easily. Yeah, and then Haw- look Hawthorne. There's another side that that came pretty good after 1964. I think I said in the book was it twelve one. 12-1 yeah. flags in 1964, and now it's 12-13 in Hawthorne's favour. So, yeah, you know, yeah, they, they, that's they, unbelievable. They didn't muck around after that period. And the um, and the other thing about that game that I, I didn't realise until, and Tim and I looked at some of the footage, but you mentioned it as well in the book, is that that goal, you know, you think about, you hear stories about that goal and you think, you know, he snapped it and then the siren went. But that's not actually the case. There was like another two and a half minutes of play and it was it was looking like, you know, they kept winning all the taps and it was, we were kind of just like holding them down, trying to, there must've been the most intense couple of minutes of football going around. Well, in a, in a bit of dramatic foreshadowing as well, that's pretty much what happened in the grand final. Yeah. Too. yeah. They yeah. grabbed the lead right at the end and actually footy folklore says the siren went five seconds later, but there was another couple of minutes of, of grim struggle and potential defeat um, to be had at the end of that. So one of the great things about that footage is, and I, whoever found this footage is a genius, and I hope they can also locate the entire 64 grand final in someone's garage or something one day. But it's the way when the goal goes in, um, something happens, maybe a train went past or something like that, and the Melbourne fans behind the goal all jump the fence and <laughs> run on in celebration at Hasselman's goal, and they actually had to get them off the field before they could start the game again. <laughs> they all thought the siren, yeah, exactly. They yeah. all thought the siren had gone as well. And that's another ground where you look at it now and you just say, how how did they ever play yeah. league football there? So uh, but that, you'd have a stand. That there was no there was no changes that stopped them having a stand. They just never had one on that side of the ground anyway because of the train line. So it's quite remarkable looking at that. And apparently, a lot of the players told me it was just the worst place to play. Like there was a lot of grounds that were muddy and a lot of grounds that had their issues, but. And one of them, one of the players told me that once he ran on and his, his ankle just went into slime. He just went ankle deep into green slime the moment he ran on the ground That's at the Glenfriar. Even that? this game here, there was a lot of talk that it would be have to be moved to another ground. Yes. Uh, because there'd been torrential rain. Hawthorne hadn't been able to train on it. Uh, the council who managed the ground were having all kinds of trouble getting this ground up to standard. Uh, and it was actually in a year where there was a lot of talk about Hawthorne moving. 
uh, relocating to uh, potentially Nana Wadding, Glen Waverley out that way, which is ironic considering what happened to them eventually. <laughs> um, but who's to say what would have happened if that Hawthorne had jumped the gun and gone there in the mid 60s? Uh, but there was a lot of talk about Hawthorne moving because the Glenfrey Over was just such a, a sloppy ground. Yeah. And obviously, no room to, to expand it because you had a road on one side and a train line on the other side. Uh, and a, a swimming pool down the back, and the, the only big grandstand they had was was at the sort of the city end of the ground. Yeah. Uh, so again, history. There's so many sliding doors moments in all this. Like, what would have happened if Hawthorne had uh, shifted out into the suburbs? Then, like, who knows if they would have been as successful? Yeah. And so, moving on from that, you know, we started talking about the finals, and and throughout the book, we talk about a few Collingwood games, of course. And that, that rivalry at that time was just so all-consuming. It was just huge. So what was it about the two clubs at that time, do you think, that caused them to be drawn together so much? So much? Yeah, I, th- I think until the 50s, it was a more of just a, a class thing almost. Like Melbourne was obviously a, a more upper-class team. It had no real geographical base, so it was drawing from the, the more, uh, you know, the, the, the higher socioeconomic demographic, whereas Collingwood was very working class. Mm. And the clubs had had run-ins in the past. Uh, the 1926 Grand Final, Melbourne's second VFL Premiership uh, was won against the Pies. And, uh, you know, they, they played them in the, no. you know, the 1939, I think it was, yeah. Grand Final, one of those three at least. Uh, so there had been a few rivalries there, but it really got into the 50s where you had that collision between the two great teams mm. uh, in the 1950s, really culminating in that 1958 grand final uh, where Melbourne's four bid to co- draw level with Collingwood's four flags in a row um, of that great machine team was, was derailed when they got sucked into the pies going the biff on grand final day. Yeah. <laughs> and Collingwood jumped them there. So... That's where the rivalry really, really came like big time. But the players have told me that off field, it just didn't exist. It wasn't like they were, you know, spitting on the ground when they walked past a Collingwood player <laughs> in the street. There were pretty good relations between the teams. Yeah. Um, it was but a... when it was on field, yeah, nobody wanted nobody wanted to beat anybody more than the Collingwood and, and Melbourne players of the day. Yeah, that, that, and you mentioned that. It, it does sound like it was a, a rivalry of mutual respect. Uh, yes. Um, yeah. Which is um, by 64, Collingwood had been down for a couple of seasons as well. Yeah. Uh, and Melbourne, by their standards, had been down three years to 61, 62, 63. They hadn't won a flag, which is down by Melbourne standards. But Collingwood hadn't made in the finals at all. So come 64, there was also that element by the time you got to the grand final of not only had Melbourne thrashed Collingwood's pants off in the semi final. But also Collingwood was coming from absolutely nowhere to make this grand final. And it was going to be a great chance to stitch Melbourne up again, uh, who had never gotten over 58. Like Norm Smith was was known to just mention 1958 every time Melbourne would play Collingwood uh, Mm. to the players because he was still so upset about it. So I think by the time you got to that grand final, that was the same the same thing. And that that was just that that rivalry between the teams that they just really wanted to beat each other. And again, sliding doors, they don't play in another final series together till 1989. Wow. Um, Isn't that unbelievable when you consider, as you said here, like between these two clubs at this stage, there's 23 premierships. And then for neither of them to play in a final series against each other for that long. It's unbelievable. For me, the first game I ever went to was the 1989 elimination final, Melbourne versus Collingwood. So Mm. looking at this now, the gap of 25 years from from the 1964 grand final to, to that 1989 elimination final, you look at the 25 years beforehand from 1939 to 1964, that's 10 of Melbourne's 12 premierships in yeah. that 25 years. Norm Smith involved in every single one of those as either a player or the coach. Yeah. Um, and- but then 25 years beyond 1964, just complete disaster. So it's, it's very bizarre to look at that. And so many of those elimination finals and prelims and grand finals were played between these two teams as well. It's yeah. just, yeah, unbelievable. The um, the frustrating thing with Collingwood in that era is in 1960, they kept us from a, a Norm Smith versus Len Smith grand final in 1960. And then in 64, it would have been Melbourne versus Geelong, the two oldest clubs. So I could have, I, you know, I can imagine supporters at that time would have been, oh, here we go, another Collingwood-Melbourne grand final here again. 
yeah. I think neutrals were really, uh, really into it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, the other good thing about Melbourne Geelong would have been, it would have been the premiers of 63 versus the premiers of 64. So it would have been that aspiring team versus the great team, you know, the team trying to build a new dynasty as it yeah. were. Um, by winning two flags in a row against the team that had won all those flags over the years, yeah. uh, and also there was there was a bit of there was a bit of rivalry Melbourne Geelong because they'd gone on that inter- that overseas trip at the end of 1963 and just absolutely belted the suitcase out of each other. Yeah, uh, in Hawaii and San Francisco uh, over two games, which again was very strange because to, to talk to the players at the time, those teams actually used to do a lot of stuff during the off season together. They used to have picnics yeah. together. <laughs> Um, Brian Dixon did his hamstring in a running race at a picnic once between <laughs> Melbourne and Geelong, but then they got uh, white line fever when they went overseas and absolutely started belting each other. So that that would have added an extra element to it as well. Uh, I just would have yeah. been a lot very interesting to have a Melbourne Geelong grand final. But you always got to go on. The end result ended in Melbourne winning a flag, so I'm happy that Colin. Yeah, <laughs> we'll take it. I just yep. I love that Hawaii story. I love the anecdote of Geelong having the badge saying first first VFL team in America and they rock up and Melbourne's already there. It is yep. so sneaky. I just love that. There was a, there was a lot of anxiety about, uh, yeah, about that and a lot of rivalry on and off field. Yeah. So good. I also, I mean, we can speculate as much as we want. Like if the Demons had have won 58, would they have been as wary of the D- of Magpies in 1964? Would they, I mean, even 59 and 60, would they have happened? Yeah, because well, that's it. If they lost sixty four, uh, would the would the pain of um, potentially they, and Collingwood could have won with a kick after the siren because there was a yeah. reasonable shout for a free kick right on the siren twenty meters out directly in front. Uh, if that had been the result that had won, would that have fired Melbourne up and they might have won ten flags in a row? It might have been like St George in the NRL. <laughs> they might have been unbeatable for ten years, but yeah. unfortunately, fortunately, they won the flag. Unfortunately. And nothing has followed since. Yeah. Yeah. So, and we, I mean, obviously the book's called The Last Hurrah and 64 uh, was the end of an era um, with obviously, and the things that happened after the season with Brass departing. Um, at, the, at the time though, inside the club, there were a few mentions of uh, some people feeling like it was their last chance, but at the same time, there there wasn't, didn't seem to be a lot of uh, retirements coming and things like that. So how, what was the feeling inside the club? What did they feel that sort of sense of this is our shot to our final shot to win this? Or did they think, you know, this is who we are. We're just going to keep stay on top. Yeah. I think the players were, were split between thinking, especially once Barassi left, because really a Frank Adams who won six premierships as well as Barassi was the only retirement yeah. at the end of that season. So really, they lost Adams and Barassi, which were not uh, not small losses, but they still had sixteen premiership players left yeah. in the in the team uh, after that. But uh, some players thought that there was enough young talent in the team to keep going and to at least stay in the mix for a couple of seasons. Uh, and some thought that with the the get, players getting older, your John Lords, your Brian Keneally, um, he was you know, st- still within his prime. Hassan Mann was still in his prime. Uh, but your Brian Dixon's people like that were, were coming towards the end of their career, um, that it probably was going to be the last shot for that group. But Norm Smith had, and, and you know, Jim Cardwell and Ken Carlin and all the off-field guys had managed to rebuild the team on the run several times yeah. uh, in that decade of success, that you, you almost have to think that with a free reign to, to rebuild and not worry about anything else, uh, and given a couple more seasons that they might have actually found found the players they needed to keep going. Uh, and in those days, uh, till the country recruiting changed, I suppose, that probably would have would have ended in a bit of equalisation. But until then, uh, there was no reason that a team shouldn't just keep rebuilding, grabbing the best young players from the country uh, and just keep going every year. So they probably would have got a couple more years out of it uh, had, yeah. they been, had they been able to. Sorry, going back to the grand final. Um, in that win, Norm Smith was uncharacteristically caught jumping for joy, which is the, the front cover of your book. Why did, did he know that that was his last chance, or did what? Why do you think he reacted in that way? He definitely put a lot of his energy into that physical and psychological energy into that season. Uh, he definitely knew that that team was 
starting to, to reach its, to go on the downslide. Yeah. Uh, and that was part of the friction he had with the committee in that his belief was they needed to, to keep recruiting and keep changing things around. Whereas a lot of the people in the committee were, uh, uh, in Smith's view, very conservative and very happy just to keep cruising and everything will be fine because it has been for 10 years. So I think he, he put a lot of his uh, effort and energy into that season. And that's why getting the revenge on Collingwood was one thing. Um, yeah. Not throwing away the, that semi-final win. Um, you can imagine what, what it would have been spoken about if you win a semi-final by 80-something points and then lose the grand final to the same team two weeks later. Uh, his team would have probably come under all kinds of scrutiny and you know, innuendo and abuse about their, their character. So I think he was really, really happy about that as well. Um, but he, he knew, like even his, his brother, Len, said, you know, you won that without a team. Uh, yeah, because yeah. really they, they had injury problems all year. They had makeshift players. You had Graham Wise, who was not of the day a traditional ruckman, uh, holding down that really important post all season. You had a forward line that, that really shared goals everywhere. I think you had five or six players that kicked more than 20 goals for the season. It was a very strange team. And as we talked about before, they almost didn't make the finals. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was a good team. It was a, an accomplished team. It was a team that had a lot of really good players in it, but it was nowhere near, like 1956, for instance, probably the the best team ever to be fielded in, in Australian rules football. Uh, the, <laughs> team, the team had come a long way downhill from that uh, to still be contenders and still be worthy premiers but they were not certainly the premiership team they were a few years ago. And I think that's why Smith was so excited about that because he'd had those battles with the committee and he'd had the arguments with, with people throughout the year. Uh, and so he was really happy just to be vindicated with that, with that extra flag. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you've just compared the side to um, 56. There, there are a few different sides there. And obviously the 56 side is very similar to a lot of the ones just around it. But, and maybe Norm's reaction tells us a bit about this, but how how do you feel the 64 win compares with those previous premierships, especially something like 57, which, as we've mentioned, was supposed to be like a, a rebuilding side, and, and this kind of was as well. Should have been, yeah, the, Bombers, well, should have been the Bombers in 57. <laughs> well, they lost a bunch of players uh, after 56, and, yeah, came back and won 57. Uh, this one, yeah, it certainly wasn't the best football team, uh, but it, it was still a very good team. But yeah, it definitely wasn't the best of the premiership teams. Uh, and I think even, even Barassi said that at one point. He said it was probably, of all those Melbourne premiership teams in that era, it was probably the least uh, accomplished of them all. And perhaps mm. maybe he saw that part fit into part of his decision to leave, uh, seeing that, that that team you know, was not going to get particularly much better. Uh, and certainly without the loss of Adams and with the impending losses of your, your Brian Dixons, who in one of the most bizarre scenarios of all time was elected as a, a member of parliament halfway through the season. Yeah. Uh, and no one has ever been able to tell me, I've never found anyone else who's ever played in a grand final while also being a sitting member of parliament. <laughs> but it was, it was pretty clear that he was, his career was coming to an end as well. And he was probably the best on the ground that day, the member for Paran. Uh, sorry, member for St Kilda, pardon me. Uh, it was his, his teammate, Robert Miller, ended up as the member for Paran. Yeah. Unbelievable. It was a very political team because then you had Ray Groom became the Premier of Tasmania. Yes. Well, he didn't play in the grand final, of course, but he was on the list that year. Yeah. And so you, had, you had three, three four future members of Parliament in that one team. It's, un- it's unbelievable. It's like, a, like the movie Predator with all the governors in it. <laughs> <laughs> But I think there's, yeah. a, there's a Barassi quote at the end of 64 where he talks about Norm Smith being worth an extra player, which I, I think I agree with. By that stage of his career, he was so effective in getting results that they did, he just willed them to win. Yeah, exactly. And that's, uh, I think his, his impact on a lot of the players um, can't be understated. And that's why there's a, when, when you know, everything goes wrong the next year, he gets sacked, he gets reinstated. Uh, a lot of the things that have been said by players is that like, it just took the air out of the place. Uh, his sort of commitment was still so high, but it was almost like the, the immortality had been, uh, you know, pierced. The air of immortality had been pierced after that. And, and he sort of started to lose 
a bit of uh, not interest, but just that that really driven motivation to do everything for the club to win after that. So yeah, mm. I, I certainly don't think you would have got um, probably not. You never know, but had Norm Smith halfway through the season given up the game and you know handed over the reins to Ron Barassi, for instance, to coach, uh, it it could have still been a premiership team. They still had the the cattle to win a premiership, but but I would agree that his that talismanic figure of Smith. Uh, was really important, despite the fact that if if he'd had his if he'd had his way, Neil Crompton would never have gone across halfway. Yeah, of course. Uh, the ground to be able to kick that goal, so <laughs> you can't always be. No, exactly. So um, Jim Cardwell said that Noel Smith should have probably retired after '64. What do you think he should have? Well, he tried to because he, he when he when Barassi announced he was leaving, oh, yeah, Smith yeah. had to stand aside and and let uh, let Barassi take over from him. But Barassi had seen how Smith and Checker Hughes interacted mm-hmm. uh, and felt that he probably wasn't, uh, probably wasn't, he wouldn't be seen as his own man if he had Norm Smith there sort of looking over his shoulder the whole time. Um, in, in future, if you look at what happened after that, he probably should have, but I don't think at the time you would have gotten him out of the place uh, if Barassi left. The only way you would have gotten him out of the place was to let Ron Barassi replace him. I don't think he would have stepped aside for anybody else. Mm. Um, uh, so, yeah, maybe yes by the historical record, but at the time, I don't think there was ever ever a chance that that would happen. That's it. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, isn't it? You can, yeah, you look, look back on it and think what could have happened. But I, it's interesting, you know, you, you can compare, almost compare that to what we've seen with these uh, succession plans that we're even seeing these days. And they just, it just doesn't work because you've got two, two alpha personalities who want to run the show on their own terms. And you, you imagine the exact same thing would have happened with Barass and, and Norm at that time. Exactly. And, and yeah, like I said, Norm, Barassi had that box seat view to see how Norm Smith and Checker Hughes interacted. Yeah. yeah. And of course, was the coach when Norm was winning premierships. And then the, the situation was reversed where, now Checker was, you know, the older, sort of crankier, crankier bloke, and he'd often get into arguments with Norm Smith. Um, one one time during the season, they actually got into a shouting match on the bench because Checker had had ideas about where a player should be played, and Norm disagreed, and Checker kept going on with it, and they got into a big argument about it. So I think that's where Barassi probably saw that was his future if he if he had he Smith around over his shoulder, because as much as Smith would have walked into a job at any other team in the league. Uh, I don't think he would have done it. Uh, he obviously left to coach Fitzroy when he finished playing at Melbourne, uh, where he, he lost the he lost the vote to become the the coach of Melbourne by one one vote, and uh, so he went off to Fitzroy to do his coaching apprenticeship, and then came back and won the vote by a, won the vote by one um, when he took over from Alan Lafontaine, uh, and later he coached South Melbourne, of course. But I, I don't think he would have willingly left to coach against Melbourne. Uh, no. at that time under any circumstances. And so, I mean, th- this whole um, era, what happens, you know, pr- preceding this with 65 um, and and Norm Smith's, as you said, his talismanic uh, sort of influence over the Melbourne Football Club for, you know, 20, how, how long is it? So, yeah, 20, more than 20, 25 years at this stage. Um has then, because of what happens in 65, is looked upon as the curse of the Red Fox at, at Melbourne. There, there's, you know, it, it's easy to say that that's just a throwaway line, but what what is the curse that's been left by what happened with Norm Smith and the way that is? What do you think the curse, like, really is at Melbourne? I think it's almost a shorthand for all the series of disasters that have befallen the club since, like... It goes to just that the looking for a messiah. They were always looking for a messiah after Smith left. Every time Barassi was out of contract, um, even when Barassi left, there was an expectation that he was just going to do a couple of years at Carlton and then come straight back in as co- and coach Melbourne when Norm Smith retired. And then when he left Carlton, there was an expectation he was going to come back. Um, and when he went before, even before he went to North Melbourne, they thought he was going to come back. So there it was just this this string of just trying to find the Messiah all the way to 81 when they finally got Barassi back. Yeah. Um, and the expectation was that, you know, this is it. And then they won one game by one point for the whole season. Um, so I, I think 
think that it's almost like what Paul Rose spoke about a few years ago, the veil of negativity that mm. just hangs around Melbourne. And I, I think that's what the Norm Smith curse is to me. Like, I don't think it's some mystical voodoo, the thing <laughs> where he's controlling things from beyond the grave because uh, if he is, he's being a bit mean because Fitzroy in another guise and Sydney in another guise, South Melbourne in another guise, have both won flags. Yeah. Um, and they are, they're the other two teams in his in his life. So if he is, then, you know, come on. it's about time. Yeah, but <laughs> I, I don't think that is. Look, I, I think should, I can't believe I'm discussing this, but should Norm Smith, should we believe that Norm Smith had any, uh, you know, control I, over the destination of the VFL, AFL Premiership? I'm sure he would have slung Melbourne one uh, sometime <laughs> in the last 50-something years. Just yeah. one would be lovely. And Norm, if you if you are um, listening to Spotify somewhere out there, uh, just you know check this one out and listen. We're praying, please come on, let just us one, let us have one. One will do. That's we won't get greedy. We don't we don't need the three piece. We just just give us one flag and we can uh, at least put our feet up for a while. <laughs> um, Adam, I heard you talking on SEN a few weeks ago, and you originally said this book was you'd based it on everything that had happened since '64, and then you decided to go back and and do it on 64 why was yep. that uh, I, I just think that was probably a more publisher friendly angle to, to concentrate um i think i said on SEN to go more 70 30 on the 64 and the past stuff rather than 30 on 64 and 70 on the on the past stuff but yeah stuff that comes past it it's just it is a really underrated story mm. um mainly of tragedy and shambles yeah. Uh, but, but it's it's a lot of stuff that you know uh, researching that over the years the number of false starts they had in that time and um, you know when they when Ian Ridley became the coach and they won about the first six games of the season and still missed the finals um, in when they when Bob Skilton was coach and they f- fell so sh- um, horrendously short of the finals in 1976 where all they had to do was beat Collingwood in the last game, make, send Collingwood to the wooden spoon for the first time ever and hope that Carlton beat Footscray at Princess Park. And Carlton was top. Footscray was in the running against Melbourne. And Melbourne, for once, actually did the right thing. They beat Collingwood. The brave Melbourne fans who were there threw wooden spoons over the fence <laughs> uh, in taunting of the Collingwood fans. And then the news came through from Princess Park that Footscray had drawn with Carlton. And so Footscray jumped Melbourne into the five instead and Carlton missed out and, and the uh, Collingwood fans broke into the Carlton theme song uh, in taunting the Melbourne wow. fans who'd thrown wooden spoons earlier. And, and so, the, you know, that's the next year Collingwood made a final, made the grand final. Yeah. Came to the last night, the grand final, Bob Skilton got sacked. Yeah. Um, and Melbourne doesn't go near the finals again until 1987. Yeah. And, and you've got, they, they signed Carl Dietrich, they signed Phil Carmen, they signed Kelvin Templeton, they signed Peter Moore, they yeah. got Ron Barassi back. They just had so many false starts and just uh, moments where it was just dragged away from them. And they had a one-year coaching reign. Like, how often do you see a one-year coaching reign? Um, Dennis Jones in 1978 um, came off the committee to become the coach, um, which is which is very sus. I'd like to delve into that more because jumping straight... <laughs> and he had been a coach before yeah. in the VFR and in Perth, but he, he sort of came came out of the committee to be the coach, only lasted a season. And it's a season, if you look up the 1978 Melbourne year season, some of the most ridiculous scores you'll ever see. They lose one game to St Kilda by, I think it's 141 to 204. Yeah. So just factor that in. Losing by 10 goals when you score 140 points. Another <laughs> uh, game where they almost do the reverse. They beat Fitzroy something like 154 to 144. And it's just a remarkable season. And Dennis Jones, yep, end of the season, he was out. And that's uh, then Carl Dittrich came back as the playing coach <laughs> a couple of seasons, including the game we lost to Fitzroy by 190 points, yeah. the all-time. Still still fortunately, the all-time all VFL record, even though we almost beat it ourselves at Cadinia Park about 10 years ago next <laughs> week. Yeah, God. To hold, to hold one and two. And to be honest, I was there that day and I was almost thinking I would rather them actually break the record than at least I would have been here to see the all-time, <laughs> all-time record. Because it was oh, our yeah. record anyway, so I might as, well, might as well see it. So there's just, that's, I, I really do have a fascination about that 70s uh, and early 80s period of Melbourne. And even when it finally came good, like John Northey, 
they, they tried Carl Dietrich, they tried Ron Barassi, they tried Bob Skilton, they tried Ian Ridley, like all John Beckwith, all these fantastic coaches. And the guy that finally does get Melbourne back into the finals is John Northey, who was hired after being sacked after one season as the Sydney Swans coach. So you, you went through all this, all these attempted messiahs, and then you found a guy that had a lot of coaching, a lot of coaching background, a lot of assistant coaching background, but his entire VFL coaching career consisted of one season before Dr. Edelston sacked him. And then two seasons in, he's getting Melbourne into the finals. And then they played five five consecutive finals from '87 under his watch, um, which just seems five consecutive finals. You know, that's just would seem remarkable to us now. You're a real. I mean, if you back this all along with your other book, The Great Depression, you're a real glutton for punishment. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's it's very unfortunate. I was very unlucky to be a Melbourne fan in the first place. (laughs) Putting it in the putting it in the hands of the gods in 1988 and saying, I'll go for whoever plays Hawthorne in the grand final. Yeah. Uh, so if, if Murray Renstead had, had kicked the goal where he ran into an open goal with about five seconds left in the elimination final and put Melbourne out, uh, every other team in that final series since has won a flag. So, um, so there's no more appropriate uh, fact of that. And the fact that I was born in 1981 when they won one game by one point. So... Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's, it's a spirit quest at this point. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. You know, to be a Melbourne supportee, we really, you know, we've got to stick together now. Yeah. It's the community. No, no one knows quite what it's like. No. Unless you go for some Kilda as well, I guess. But That's yeah. true. And that's the thing. You've got to balance it up. Do you want to be Melbourne and we, we do the right thing and get thrashed in grand finals and don't get up anyone's hopes up? Or you be St Kilda and you just... I, I couldn't imagine being a St Kilda fan and thinking about... <laughs> I'd be waking up every day thinking about that ball bouncing towards the goal. I know. Yeah. So, you know, swings and rounds. And to me, and to me, I may as well be a St Kilda fan because in my lifetime, neither team's won a flag. It's no, it's no consolation to me that we've won 12 and they've won one. <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. No. No. So, you know, I guess in my lifetime, I would rather have been a Melbourne fan than a St Kilda fan because I wouldn't have that, that daily just the thoughts about how close <laughs> on two occasions we'd gone to a flag. We've been twice and lost by a combined total of about 160 points. Yeah. They, they really snatched it away from us at an early stage so we didn't have to stress about it, which was nice yeah, of them to do. Exactly. It's generous. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, by talking about everything that's happened since 64, you, know, you talk about all the changes and the, these coaches who've been around for one year and how we've gone through all these different things and, constantly been reaching to find the next messiah um it seems like that period was just such a period of consistency of everything of board of coach of team and and that created the what was the melbourne dynasty i guess and we talked tim and i were talking last week about um the fact that you know that that word dynasty gets thrown around a lot you know in these days um, and we think a few teams, you know, have been called a dynasty team, which when you think about the teams that are above yesteryear, don't even compare to. So what what do you think of as a dynasty team? Yeah, look, I think you could pretty much say that, Melbourne team, because it's not just about oh, what absolutely. you win. It's not what, just about what you win. It's about the, the uh, success on either side, if, even without having the premiership success. Like, I, for all as much as I would cut my leg off to be in Richmond's position at the moment, do, do you call that a dynasty team just because they won three flags? When If nope. they do nothing on either side of it, it's a great era. It's one of the best eras of all time. Um, but is it? Is, is Brisbane? I don't know. That's, yep. that, to me, whereas Hawthorne, Hawthorne of the 80s. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Very early 90s. That, that, to me, is a dynasty team. So and all the dynasty- I don't think... Sorry, yeah, I don't think there's any in history. I think you can pretty much narrow it down to a to a handful of teams in history. Yeah, and yeah, the dynasty absolutely. teams. And I think '64 is a good example because that was the outlier, and all these dynasty teams seem to have an, an outlying premiership that they they managed to snatch because of the experience and the the coaching and the skills that they've got. Because you can just get that extra one because you're such a good team. Yeah, and and that's why they weren't out of the running in '61, '62, '63. They were there. They were. You know, they went pretty close to winning the prelim the year before and making the grand final. So they never went away for that yeah. whole time. That that huge run of always being at least in the mix. 
um, until I think 62, perhaps, they, they lost the first week of the finals and were eliminated. There was only one time they didn't at least make it to the, to the second week of the finals or the second game of the finals. So I think that's the difference between that and a team that just has that small burst of success. And, and you know, who wouldn't want a small burst of success? I'd, I'd be happy with the smallest burst of success <laughs> at the moment. Yeah, But I think you can't compare, you, in a modern way, you can't compare the Richmond team now or the Brisbane team to that Hawthorne team uh, of the 80s. I think that's probably the last real dynasty team because yep. they just were, were always there you know, for the best part of a decade. I mean, yep, you've almost I got to wait a decade before working out who's a, who's a dynasty and who's not. Um, I want to do some more speculating with you really quickly. 65, they get rid of Norm Smith, but they went, what was it, 8-0 start of the season. Yep. If that whole situation didn't happen, do you think they still would have made finals or was all the, the cracks papered over by those close wins? I think they would have made the finals, but I don't think they would have necessarily contended for the premiership. Um, and you're right, those first few weeks of the season, and there was a lot of parallels to this season <laughs> where... They won a lot of games at the start of the year, but none of them were particularly convincing wins. So it, it might have been a bit of a false 8-0, uh, no, but I think the, the grounding was obviously there um, that, that they should have made the finals. Uh, and I'm almost certain they wouldn't have lost against North Melbourne at Coburg, uh, Quagmire or not, on the day, the day after Smith was sacked, uh, if he had been in charge. Um, so that would have been at least one win, one win more in the bank. Um, and you've got to think they would have, yeah, they would have grabbed a couple more wins at the back end of the season if they hadn't had that distraction. Yeah. But I certainly don't think it was a double chance team. It was probably yeah. a third or fourth place team. Okay, um, you're lucky to get through to the second week of the finals. And, and I don't think after that the trajectory would have been um, much different to how it was um, you know, over the next couple of seasons because you would have started to lose those those experienced players, um, and you would have. Yeah, you would have been starting to get to the point where you couldn't just replace them with anyone you wanted from the country. Yeah. Um, and, of course, the thing about that country zoning thing is that literally the zones and the leagues were picked at random. Like, they went into AFL, VFL house, as it was, um, and the, and basically I can't remember if it was picked out of a hat or overturned a cup or whatever it was, and that said, this is your league. Yeah. Um, so you were mm. at the mercy of what you picked and, and realistically Melbourne got the Golden Valley league, which really didn't pull out too many great players until the eighties. Yeah. Come the eighties, you had you know, Gary Lyon, Stephen Tingay, uh, Rod Grinter. You had a lot of really good players come out of that era um, in the, in the eighties, but the seventies and the well, the late sixties, I suppose it only just came in, but the seventies, you didn't get that many great players. Whereas uh, a Carlton that just randomly happened to pick the zone that covered Bendigo got a ton of great players yeah, of course. Uh, from that era. Um, and South Melbourne, I think they picked, a, they picked, got ironically got Wagga in the New South Wales Riverina area. And that didn't really do much for them either. So who knows, again, if they'd randomly picked somewhere better, a better zone, that might've helped them as well. So if we presume that Melbourne picked the same zone, uh, I don't think it would have helped them much over the next couple of years. I think they would have probably, probably gone down towards the bottom of the ladder anyway. Okay. Fair enough. So, uh, linking linking this um the the stuff that you talked about in '64 to uh, today, um, there's a lot of focus on talking. Uh, Norm talks about the t- the team before the individual, not going for your, uh, not trying to do, make yourself look the best, but do what's best for the team. Focusing on building starting with a strong defence and, and building from there. And and there was a non-reliance in this team of key forwards kicking heaps of goals but sharing the load with the midfield as well. Like looking at the team of, of this year, it, I feel like it almost re- is a, a reflection of, of what we're seeing. And I don't want to get too ahead of myself here, but the, those things that, you know, those focuses that he's talking about, of especially that team before individual, and that's something that... It, Simon Goodwin's been talking about a lot in his press conferences this year, and the team's been talking about a lot from preseason. Do you see that link as well? Yeah, I, I definitely do. Look, I think that it's in the same situation where it's not the perfect team. It's a good, it's a good team. It's got good players in it. Obviously, it lacks the uh, you know previous success to 
to look back at and the, to reference because everything seems new and exciting to us uh, at this time of the season, being top of the ladder at this time of the year. Um, but it, it's, gee, it's not the perfect team, so they've got to make do via other, other methods. And look, the 64 team uh, didn't have a great full forward. Uh, you had Barry Burke, who'd had a really good first season the year before, um, but he only kicked sort of 30 goals or something that season. But as I said earlier, about five or six players kicked more than 20 goals for the season. So it was a really yeah. big spread. Um, and, and you had, you know, players like Ray Groom would have played the grand final absolutely if he wasn't injured. Uh, and they did really try hard to get him up for the grand final, but he, he just couldn't make it. But there was a, there was a definite um, yeah, idea about sharing the goals around and making sure that the opposition teams didn't know exactly who was going to kick the goals. Uh, and I guess the, the ultimate version of that is what happened in the grand final where you had a back pocket player go forward and, and kick the goal. Uh, and then you had Barry Burke, who was the full forward, going into defence and saving the game with a mark in the dying seconds as well. So it, it was a very adaptable. It wasn't quite your, your soccer, Dutch, total football sort of thing where anyone could play anywhere on the ground. Uh, but there was a high level of adaptability just because they needed to, because they didn't have the players um, that they, they um, you know, they didn't have the players to perfectly fit every spot on the ground. And I think, yeah, today, if you were Simon Goodwin, you'd probably be quite happy if there was a full forward kicking 60 goals. Yeah. Um, but equally, equally, just like Norm Smith, you're, you are happy when, when you get goals out of the midfield and when you get goals out of small forwards and ruckmen. Um, I, I guess that's a, yeah, a, a part of that, you hesitate to say the word because it's been abused so much, but Moneyball, you know, it's, it's, about, it's about creating goals. It doesn't matter where they come from as long as they go through. Uh, yeah, it's about making the goals. So who knows? Maybe Norm was the, uh, the, father, of, the father of the Moneyball idea after all. So, Adam, was it a, is it a coincidence this book is coming out with the Demons having their best shot at a flag since 64? Well, it, the, uh, the idea started at the end of 2019, after which Melbourne had plummeted from a preliminary final to 17. So yeah. it probably, it, it might have come out last year had it not been for uh, the big COVID shutdown. Yeah. Um, so it is a complete coincidence that, uh, that could happen this year. It's, I did think at the time it was a bit embarrassing to be called the last hurrah if they went on to win the flag. Yeah. And then I thought, <laughs> then I thought what do I care? Yeah, like, I'm happy. I'm sorry. That's I'm sorry to uh, everyone at Hardy Grant and Slattery Publishing. I'm very sorry, but I don't care. I would rather win the flag and have the book with a uh, NQR title. Uh, I will go if anyone's aggrieved after Melbourne wins a flag. I'll be happy to go into their house with a texter and <laughs> fix it up because I just want that flag. I just you know you never know when it's you never know when the opportunity is going to pass and you're never going to see that opportunity again. So if it works, you might have to write the other, other years as well. Well, that's true. That's true. We might have to uh, fill in, fill in the gaps at some point. Yeah. <laughs> um, so looking at, um, you know, going back to that, that history of what happened in 64 and, uh, and, and then what happened in 65 and everything that's happened since, um, Norm Smith has one of the longest lasting legacies of a player and a coach in our game. I guess like as a, like you've said, there's been so many sliding doors moments throughout this entire story. And there always is in all football because of what happened in 65 and him being removed from the club. Do you think that maybe his legacies even stronger because of that does gone because he's gone out on top and he was taken out of the club when we were still you know probably probably at what looked like the end of an era as as it, it has been in the past and like we've seen now that it was the end of that era and do you think he could have continued um coaching and rebuilt a team to continue that le winning legacy on or do you think it was kind of the end of his coaching strategy anyway and 65 kind of allowed a bookend yeah, well, and after a look at his career. Well, he did come back and, and get a really pretty ordinary South Melbourne team into its first finals series since, I think, since the war. So yeah, there was still five. something. So, yes, there was still something in Smith um, and his methods at the time. But, yeah, I, I think he's really what happened after really solidifies the legacy um, of Norm mm. Smith and what he did. Um, like you said before, if he pulled the pin at the time 
uh, his legacy would just be through the roof. Like if, if he had successfully managed to step aside and let Barassi take over as coach uh, at the end of 1964, and no matter what he did elsewhere, and I'm sure he would have gone to a job somewhere else eventually, um, his legacy would just be even 10 times more than it is now. We tend to do, we tend to play down the drop off over the next couple of years just because of what went beforehand. Yeah, uh, and I, and I think, like I said, I think they were just at that point where you could do a little bit of rebuilding, um, but with all the changes to recruiting and, and the changes to not being able to occupy the MCG solely and everything that was going on, I think Melbourne was always set for a dip. Yeah, um, but what he did beforehand, like I said before, Melbourne has won twelve. VFL, AFL premierships, well, 12 VFL premierships. Yeah, one of them, one of them, um, you know, 1900, as you'd know, you know, they won it from sixth because the final series allowed all eight teams to play finals, which is the most ridiculous idea of all time. (laughs) So realistically, 1926 was the only flag Melbourne deservedly won in history that didn't involve Norm Smith. He played in four and then he coached in six. Um, that that is just a remarkable legacy, and and it has to go alongside Checker Hughes, who's the same thing. He was mm. there. Hughes was not the coach of '64, but he was there with Smith, and he was involved. Um, and obviously, he was the coach of those premierships in the the late '30s uh, and the mid '40s. So between those two, um, it, it is just a remarkable legacy between them. And it's you know, I, I would I doubt there is anybody else apart from St Kilda, probably apart from St Kilda who has been involved in so many premierships of a team proportionally that a team's won, uh, as Norm Smith has, being involved in 10 of, 10 of 12 Melbourne premierships. Um, Adam, just before we finish up, I just want to ask you quickly about your blog. Um, you've been doing it since 2005? Yes. Yeah. Um, what, what's the hardest part about doing it? Um, sometimes it's just getting it done because I just want to write so much. Yeah, um, it's just uh, it's it's just the basically the mind dump of everything that comes out of my head. Yeah, um, before, during, and after a game. Yeah. Uh, so often the timings in two thousand and five, uh, I couldn't have foreseen that I'd be in a house with two kids, and one <laughs> of them would be doing uh, homeschooling, and the other one would be two months old, and stuff like that. So I used to back in the day, I used to just yeah, smash them out all right all night, and. You know, yeah. go to bed at five o'clock in the morning, job well done. Whereas now sometimes it stretches out for a couple of days. You got to do a little bit on the Saturday, a little bit on the Sunday, yeah. go to work on the Monday, come back home after work and finish it off there. So yeah, um, that's probably the hardest bit now that not just having the time to dedicate to just going crazy on it like I want to. Um, <laughs> stretch out. But often sometimes that, that helps your perspective because you're not coming yes. straight in after a game and going ballistic you, you come back the next day and you change you see something you say, oh no i better not say that oh no I've, I've got a new perspective on that yeah um, so it's probably it's probably helped round it out a bit what's yeah, what's, <laughs> what's the best bit about doing it um i, I kind of get a kick whenever anyone gets into it because i really don't do it for the perspective of being noticed or being you know famous or anything like that i just do it for my own benefit like i never look at the the reader numbers or anything um and you just find these random sort of people. It's almost like Fight Club where <laughs> you just find random people here and there that are into it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where the SEN thing came from, that the producer um, of the of the Jared Whateley show was a reader of it. And so yeah. he must have got the must have got the press release or whatever from uh, <laughs> at the time when the when the PR stuff went out and got me on there. Um, so it's yeah, it's kind of cool just finding out people know about it. Um, even a guy I used to work with, I put it up on LinkedIn and a guy I used to work with, oh, my friends all think you're great. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> but you know, and he's like, I had no idea. I'm like, that's right. You had no idea. Cause I tried to very much to keep my identity a secret for <laughs> several years and uh, eventually just gave up and, and just copped being half, half known. I still won't put my name on the blog or my Twitter or anything, but yeah. it shouldn't be too hard to connect the dots if you're trying to fix me yeah. up. <laughs> exactly. And you and you take submissions. We got there's a few things I find every now and then where like where I feel like I should message you and and uh, have it added to the to your your resource there. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Look at De- the Demon Wiki stuff. Like if you've got anything, um, anyone who's got anything they want to add to that, um, there's an email address that's on the page, which is just mfchistory at gmail dot com. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, more than happy to grab grab suggestions from people. I've had a lot of stuff over the years, even from you sort of uh, you, you guys who played under nineteens 
and didn't play anyone else, didn't play for anyone else, and they, they send you in their, their story and you can add that. Um, Corrections to family members as well. Awesome. Um, so much of it is just cribbed from newspapers, which, you know, newspapers are no more accurate in the past than they are today. <laughs> oh, yeah, so tell me about often it. Find conflicting stories of, you know, one thing will say the person was recruited from Shepherd and the other paper will say they were recruited from Warnable. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, and you'll put that in the page, you'll see, you'll go with the one you are certain, are sh- most sure about and put a note down the bottom. And then a, a family member will say, this is my grandfather. And he, he was definitely from Warnable. And yet you, you <laughs> let it that. And yeah, you know, change the note at the bottom of the page to say, you know, some sources incorrectly state that so-and-so yeah. was from, from Shepparton. Yeah. No, um, we've, we've had the same issue with our podcast trying to be as accurate as possible. Yeah. yeah. You, you just never know with these things because in the past, the, the reporting on footy, was so you know, slender compared to what it is now. Um, yes, no. I mean, the match reports back in the day were much more detailed. Well, that's true. That, that, that is true. The match reports were, were almost a blow-for-blow blow description in some, yeah. in some circumstances. But it's more, if you look in the other five-days-a-week paper, yeah. um, you you're not going to get a Sunday paper. You might not even <laughs> get a Saturday paper. You, you'll find the only the merest slivers of footy news uh, you'll go through entire summers where there's not one mention of footy yeah. uh, in a sport collection yeah. uh, compared to now. But you're right. They go, they go mental on the, uh, on the match reports, yeah. which is amazing. Like it's just such a detailed, isn't it? Too detailed. For, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the, the, lang- the language they use is fantastic. It's almost like they're writing a novel. It's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. And then there's some that there's a guy that wrote for the Australasian and he always say things like, you know, kickists. He'd call he'd call full forwards kickists. Yeah, <laughs> I love things like that, like these novelty sort of statements that they they use at the time. Yeah, the player playing at the pivot. They use yes. back. Yep, oh, and the spearhead and things like that. Like, it's, yep. um, yeah, they use some great great terminology. Uh, and I've been through all the the age, which is available, Google News Archive, newspapers.com. I've been through all those as well. And, you know, there's just some some really amazing stuff uh, in there written well, as well. Well, through through your Demon Wiki, that's how I learned how to access the age. Yes. Well, they don't advertise it, that's for sure. No, like, I, and I couldn't work it out. So all I've got is a link to your one of your links, and that's how I access the age. And it's strange. Some of that's on newspapers.com and then some of the newspapers.com stuff's not on there. So who knows how it all works. And hopefully, fingers crossed, one day, your, your Herald Sun oh, News will do. will catch up and do the same. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, whoever owns the rights to inside football these days, I'm not sure if it's still I think it's media. media. Yeah. Um, you know, might, might just pay some work experience kid to go and scan them all. Well, they're all they're, they're all the MCC library, but they're yeah. You've got to go through them. Yeah, it's the same state library. Like the MCC library ones are great because they are literally the the actual magazines themselves, whereas the yeah. state libraries the microfilm. Yeah, um, yeah. The stuff you find in there is incredible, and and I've barely scraped that the surface of that over the years. Like, yeah. I would love to have the opportunity to actually sit there for a week and go through, rather than just you know three or four hours here and there, and obviously nothing in the last year. Yeah. Um, to be able to go through all those inside footballs and, and get all the stuff. And that's where you get a lot of the, the columns about the Diamond Valley League or the VFA and you find out, oh, this guy played for this team and this guy played for this team and he played reserves for Melbourne in 1972. And you're like, you yeah. beauty. That's going, in the, <laughs> that's going on the wiki. Nice. So, yeah, it's quite exciting when you find something new or find a, find a player's photo that you didn't have or find out where someone was from recruited from. Like I've got a big list of players that, you know, I've got, I don't know where they were recruited from and you, you find a newspaper article and it, it, you know, tells you where they're from and you're like, yes, you beauty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I completely understand that thrill of thrill of finding that information. Cause I'm the same. <laughs> as dorky as it sounds. No, no, <laughs> bloody noble. It's noble work. That's it. And the good news is there is a few people doing it now. Like you've got, Obviously, podcasts, um, AFL Tables, which has been going for probably, I reckon, 1999, I discovered AFL okay. Tables. Yeah. Um, and, and you got your AustralianFootball.com. You got the Blue Zeeum, which is the Carlton yeah. version of Blue Wiki that I was my inspiration while I was trying to cheat on the SEN quiz one day <laughs> um, and, and, tried, and was trying to find the uh, answers and thought, I could do one of these for Melbourne. Yeah. So you've got a few, you've got a few more. You've got people actively updating Wikipedia pages and things like that as well. So... It's yeah. certainly, um, it's better than it was back in the mm. day. Like AFL tables was just such a revelation in the early 2000s. 
Um, but you've got a lot of people who are also contributing to the history stuff now as well, which is really good. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's definitely an area that needs needs some love. Yeah. 100% and doing doing all the work uh, so you can just, you know, all that information is just at our fingertips, which is fantastic. Yeah. And that's the thing, with, even for me, when I find a source, a resource that I haven't seen before, um, it's just amazing. Like I just dive headfirst into it, even when it's not Melbourne. <laughs> yeah. Um, not like someone, you know, did a West Coast one and I was going through that. And, you know, obviously the first thing I did was look at all the, the Melbourne players who also yeah. played for West Coast, but even just to look at the, the players, you know, it's even like when you go through AFL tables and you bring up a team's all-time player list and just sort it by games. Yeah. And just yeah. scroll right down to the bottom. And you're just like, yeah. I remember that guy. I remember that guy. You're like, I don't remember that guy. Like you look up the Gold Coast or GWS and just look at their their one and two game players and you're like, I have no idea who that person is. Like I literally <laughs> have no idea who that is. And lose hours doing that. Yeah. Nice. Well, Adam, we are we are very thankful for you taking your time to chat to us. Um, well done on writing the book. It's a really good read, and we would recommend it to all our listeners. Absolutely fantastic. Not just for even though I am a Melbourne supporter, I loved it. But it's not just for a Melbourne supporter, for anyone who loves the history of the game, it's fantastic. Yeah, if you're a Collingwood fan, you get to complain about the free kick at the end of the grand final. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it wouldn't be something a Collingwood grand final unless you had something to complain about. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so thank you very much, mate. Appreciate you time. We look forward to the next book. Thank you very much. Hope it's a premiership uh, book again. Cool. All right. Thanks, heaps, guys. Thanks for having Thanks me so on. Thanks so much, mate. Have a good night. Cheers, mate. Thank you. thank you. To find out more about the Kick to Kick team and the sources we use, visit our website www.kicktokickpodcast.com. You can contact us via email at kicktokickpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram under at kick to kick pod. Thanks so much for listening.